It's Friday, the 22nd of September. I'm Anthony Day, and this is the Sustainable Futures Report. Welcome to listeners across the world, and a special mention to my patrons. If you're a patron, it may actually be Tuesday, the 19th of September. If you too would like to be a patron, please keep listening. This week's episode is devoted to an interview. My guest today is Professor Carl S. Copeland, who is Professor of Law at the Pace University White Plains, New York, and he's also Director of the Environmental Litigation Clinic. Carl enjoys an American lifestyle on a four-ton carbon budget. Among other things, he's going to tell us how he does it. But before we start, just a word of warning. In this interview, you'll hear Carl refer to carbonfootprint.org. Unfortunately, that appears to be a malicious site. The one you want is carbonfootprint.com. Carl, thank you very much for joining us today. Would you like to start off by telling us a bit about your work at the Environmental Litigation Clinic? Sure. Um, the Pace Environmental Litigation Clinic is part of Pace Law School, and uh, we help we train law students to be lawyers and perform a public service by basically having them take on environmental enforcement cases and pollution control cases on behalf of our primary client, which is the Hudson River Keeper. And so, our primary focus has been cleaning up the Hudson River, and uh, and that's strange from every a lot of cases enforcing the Clean Water Act against. Uh, uh, in, industries and, and municipalities that were operating in violation of their permits, uh, cleaning up hazardous waste sites, but also involved in larger planning issues, power plant issues, anything that affects the water quality and the recreational opportunities in the community of the Hudson River, basically. And then through that, I've been involved and the clinic has worked with other waterkeeper organizations around the country and around the world. Uh, though our focus is in New York, we've involved in cases involving mountaintop removal mining in Kentucky and uh, even years ago on, uh, on stopping the uh, naval bombing exercises on the island of Vieques in Puerto Rico. And so uh, I'm also on the board of Waterkeeper Alliance and serve as its treasurer, so I'm, I work with waterkeeper organizations around the world. Okay, well, there's quite a wide range of things, and I've noticed from your page uh, on the university website that you've done a lot of publications in, in quite a lot of different areas. Uh, we first got in touch when uh, Kim Nicholas and Seth Wines from the University of British Columbia published mm -hmm. a guide to cutting a carbon footprint, and they set out the four things that you should do, which was to have fewer children, get rid of the car, avoid air travel, and eat a plant-based diet. Now, that caused quite a lot of controversy, and you certainly picked it up, and you uh, wrote about it on your blog, which is livesustainablynow.com. Just, um, you'd like to backtrack on that and explain to people who may not be aware of the controversy what that was all about. Well, <clears throat> first of all, I think that, um, that uh, Kim Nicholas and, and Seth Wins did a great public service by pointing out kind of how environmentalists and, and government agencies working on climate change are focusing too much on the small ticket items and ignoring the big ticket items, okay? But where I disagree with them and where the controversy is, is they came up with a number for the impact of having one child in the developed world that is just completely a fantasy, and I'll explain why in a moment, and way too high. And I, and I think that's a disservice because... You know, it's all you, you know, people who don't pay, who care about climate change, but 
are have not focused on the details and the numbers of how things compare, look at this chart. You know, and I'm, I'm sure you can. I printed it out, and you probably can't see it there. But that chart where that number for having one child is just enormous compared even to giving up air travel or giving up your car. And that's misleading because that number they, they come up with 60 tons per year is not a real number. There's no year in which you add 60 tons by having one child. And the message, you know, unfortunately, if it was simply have fewer children in the developed world, that might be one thing. But the implication seems to be that if you're having any children at all, Right. Yeah. Even if it's your first child, that that's somehow even more irresponsible than getting on a plane 12 times a year. Yeah. And that's just and, and, and I think that actually disserves the climate cause because people outside the climate movement look at that and say, oh, my God, these climate activists, they're telling us that we should just stop having children. So let's end civilization. Let's have no more human beings on the planet. Because that's the only way to solve climate change and forget about it. Because you're actually never going to successfully, you're going to never have a political movement that is based on have no children ever again. <laughs> so I think that's really a disservice. And it also, you know, it makes it look, if, if you actually, you know, ha, you know, you're not, you haven't reduced your flying, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, so you're a childless person who hasn't reduced their flying. Say, so see, I'm better than the people who... You know, don't fly but have a child because, look, their impacts are huge. Yeah. But those impacts are, you know, just have nothing to do with the actual underlying paper calculating the impacts of, of having one child in the developed world and 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 are really misleading. I mean, it, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a challenge actually whenever you're trying to get down to the numbers on your climate footprint, your carbon footprint, because at some level it becomes an accounting problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, you get on an airplane and some people say, well, my, you know, the impact of me getting on the airplane is zero because that airplane was flying anyway. Right. Which yeah. means that yeah. airplanes have no climate impact. But that's not true. And we know it's not true. Yeah. And so yeah. they did an accounting trick in, you know, in, in this chart, which had the result of, of making the impact of one child many, many multiples, right, of, mm -hmm. of what it really is under any, you know, normal accounting process. Okay. Well, I did ask them, uh, Kim Nicholas and Seth Wines, if they would appear, but they were unavailable. But um, we're all aiming at the same thing. We all want to cut carbon footprints. Now, you say that you can live well on a four-ton carbon budget, which is quite uh, ambitious, really, because the average American is pushing nearer 20, 22 tonnes, I think. That's um, right. And a lot of people say, oh, four tons. Well, that means you must be living in a tent by candlelight eating grass. But I don't think you are. But what do you do and how do you achieve this level? OK. And so one thing I, you know, I think actually if you're trying to reduce your carbon budget, it'd be just like if you're trying to reduce how many calories you eat in a day. The mm -hmm. best thing you can do is start keeping track. And so when you make choices in life, you know what the actual impact of that choice is and how that fits into your diet if it's a you know, a calorie-restricted diet or into your carbon budget if you're trying to live on a carbon budget. And so when I, you know, looked at it and drilled down, and I really, as you can tell, I like to look behind the superficial numbers, see what's behind them, um, it became obvious to me that the big ticket items in my lifestyle before I started doing this were getting to work mm -hmm. on a regular basis, um, heating my house, um, electricity consumption, and air travel. Right. 
Now, you know, this has been this. I can't say I one day had a big awakening. I've been environmentally conscious for decades, but, I, you know, it, it really came about 10 years ago. I went I was on sabbatical and started thinking and, you know, and used the time to think a little bit about, you know, what could I do to to, you know, improve my own footprint. And, you know, that's when I kind of said, you know, air travel is a big one. And if, you know, and I look at it at the end of the year, my four ton carbon budget, um, about a quarter of that goes to heating my house with natural gas, right? Mm -hmm. And that, even that, now I've reduced it to about a ton, but the typical house in the New York area heated with natural gas, even if you've got every energy efficiency improvement, is would, would actually work out to be more like three tons per person in the house. And yeah. so... You know, I, I, I do some things like I do keep the temperature low in the house and I do supplement it with a, uh, a, uh, a wood stove. Um, but, but that's one thing I could do. The other thing is uh, got rid of my gas powered car. Actually, for several years, I didn't own a car at all. But a year ago or two years ago now, um, I, uh, I, uh, the, uh, believe it or not, electric cars became so cheap. I know it's odd to hear you hear, hear me say that. But uh, the uh, little smart car, I don't know if you see them. I think, you know, they, they uh, were big in Europe before they came to the United States. Now, that's so interesting because good. Smart launched uh, an electric car and then they discontinued it. But now they've relaunched the Smart range as yeah. electrics. Uh, yeah. So you have one yeah. of those. One of the first ones. I, I, I got one of those. It's a, and only it's cost me $130 a month for a lease. And, uh, and it's a wonderful little car. And, uh, and, uh, and it, you know, it has plenty of range to get working back. And then again, there's, you know, right now there's some really simple things to do that may cost you a little bit, actually don't cost much at all. Yeah. So, you know, I signed up, you know, many people put solar panels on their house. My house is in a wooded area, so there's not enough sunlight really to justify that as on a, you know, on a kind of a, have them professionally installed. But you can get a renewable energy contract. We are basically buying the energy from, in my case, wind generation, yeah. uh, but or a combination of wind and solar, and of course, hydro has its own environmental problems too. But right now, you can count that as zero carbon impacts when you're buying your electricity from a green source. And mm -hmm. in the United States, almost all electrical consumers now have the option of choosing their electric source. Yeah. And so that's another very simple thing you can do uh, that, that reduces that impact. And with an electric car and a renewable energy contract, all of a sudden getting to work is now zero on my carbon budget. Right, right. There. Okay. But what if you want to go longer distances? I mean, um, if you want to go to remoter places in the States, uh, it's very difficult to do it without air travel, isn't it? And even, well, a, even an electric I, car won't take you very far. No, that's that's true. And so, you know, in, in, in living well on my four ton carbon budget, I, I really tried to get my daily impacts pretty much down to zero or very close to it, mm -hmm. which means I have some I have some carbon budget to use on some luxuries. And so uh, we uh, you know, we have a uh, we have a little cabin up in the mountains, about a four hour drive from here. My electric car won't make it there. We have a hybrid. My wife's car is a, a hybrid. Oh, right. okay. It's 50 yeah. miles per gallon. I, I, I can't convert that into kilometers per uh, No, in, per, in the UK, we're head, still on miles per gallon, but our gallons are a different size from yours. <laughs> yeah. So you go a little farther on, on one of your gallons. But yeah. Yeah. So, so that, you know, that ends up being a significant part of my actual carbon budget for a year is we do get to go places that way. Mm -hmm. um, 
I can usually get away with one, either transcontinental or I haven't I haven't been to Europe in a little while or transatlantic flight per year and yep. still stick to my four ton budget. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a limit. You know, the other thing actually that can be a big one is meaty. And so I've, you know, almost, you know, I, but I'd still like some beef every once in a while, but I just limit it and say, I know, you know, if I'm going to have an order, if I'm going to have a steak, that 12 ounces of beef, which works out to something like, you know, 20 pounds of carbon dioxide, yeah. that goes on my budget and I'll yeah. do it when it's really worth it, but not every day. Right. So you haven't gone vegan like Al Gore then? <laughs> no, but you know, I, 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 I am, I am impressed and I respect people do and, you know, it's, it's funny how even among environmentalists, people look at me and say, well, you know, what difference are you making? You you reduce your own footprint, but somebody else is still on the plane and you know you're not going to solve climate change through individual action. And I look at them and I say, well, when you meet a vegetarian, do you tell them why bother that cow is still going to be slaughtered anyway? Yeah. Of course not. That's right. Because once you recognize as a personal matter that that fossil fuel consumption is part of a, you know, an entire system that is going to cause extreme devastating impacts on human beings and the environment around the world, then just as a personal matter, you say, I, I want to not participate in that system any more than absolutely necessary to have a decent life, right? Yeah. And, and it's, to me, it's very much like vegetarianism. You could call it climatarianism and, and, yeah. and have that same kind of philosophy. Okay, okay. Just going back to your lifestyle, uh, what do you do in your spare time? I mean, you find things you can do which don't actually uh, significantly impact your carbon footprint? Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, you know, we go up to the mountains and uh, go cross-country skiing or hiking in the mountains. I do, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I, I, I've been a, a sailor. I've not, you know, sailing has been one of my hobbies since I was a teenager in high school. Um, and, uh, and so we actually have a sailboat that we've sailed transatlantic on a couple of times. I know not everybody can do that, but the money I save by not buying a big car, right. And not, and, and not, and, uh, and, and not having a big house, um, more than, more than means I can have a luxury like a sailboat in my life. And that's, you know, when we want to go on big adventures, that's what we do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Two years ago, we sailed to from uh, from New York to the Azores and Spain and Iberia, and then came back via Dakar and Senegal and the Caribbean. And nobody can say I've got a uh, a lousy life or a uh, <laughs> or not an interesting life. Well, it's not what most people would expect at a four ton um, carbon level at all. No, that's that's really interesting. But there are concerns, of course. Um, I'm afraid with with the current American administration, in that they've decided to turn their backs on the Paris Climate Accord, um, and we've seen in these last few weeks these terrible hurricanes in Florida and in Texas. Um, the response from the EPA was, "This is no time to talk about climate change." But do you think that public opinion is going to force them to start thinking seriously? I, I think it, we're moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think we are. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to take, unfortunately, you know, it may take a humanitarian crisis in the developed world, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about Harvey and Irma, which, which had, you know, uh, casualties in the United States that are, that are numbered in the dozens. But at the same time, there were floods in in uh, in, in in Asia, yeah. uh, which which killed thousands of people, yeah. and it barely got a mention yeah. on on the world media. 
and certainly United States media. And so unfortunately, you know, the developed world as the biggest emitters of carbon and the, the ones that will have to be the leaders in doing something about it, unfortunately, you know, I'm afraid our political system and human nature and the nature of human political systems is that, you know, you'd like to think it can be proactive, but it usually takes some kind of obvious crisis. And so um, Irma and Harvey will keep the conversation going, and that's good. And I think, you know, I, I, you know, I don't have great, I have no hopes for the Trump administration, <laughs> though the, the Donald Trump is has so little in the way of actual beliefs of his own. Mm-hmm. You just never know what's going to come out of him. I mean, you know, at one point he was saying that it was his proposal that in the wall he wants to build with Mexico, he'll put solar panels on. I don't know if you heard about that. Well, yeah, I read about that. And I thought exactly. to myself that they'll have to put the panels on the Mexican side. So will they be allowed to go into Mexico to maintain them? Well, I don't know. I could picture it to get the angle on the sun that they have to be leaning over to the U.S. side so oh, that right. they south facing towards the angle of the sun but i don't know i mean i i you know i could get behind the wall on that if that if they were going to put that much solar infrastructure in so you just never know what's going to come out of this administration but there's no reason to be hopeful on the federal u.s political level but you know but that has that has in a way there's a reaction to it that is hopeful that people said wow we didn't know it could be this bad we didn't somehow you know in november 2016 we didn't realize that it was a choice that was going to take us out of the paris accords um and so there's there's uh, hopefully a chance for a backlash that will get climate back on the map and Mm -hmm. on the map for the first time and if if you know if hurricanes get people talking about it, I think that's a good thing. I gotta say the the little bit of irony there. I'm I'm actually married to a a uh, geophysicist who's involved in climate issues. Uh, my yes. wife is Robin Bell. She's the president elect of the American Geophysical Union, and okay. she's uh, involved in Antarctic uh, uh, ice research. Is her primary research focus. But as uh, you know, in, in trying to figure out whether you can pin Irma and Harvey on climate change, you can't say that those hurricanes were caused by climate change. You can say sea level's higher, definitely, because of climate change. Um, You can say that it's the kind of thing that there's a good chance we'll see from climate change. But even there, you know, and I like to be, I like to be very strictly scientific, and I don't, you know, that's maybe, you know, maybe I'm I'm not the best advocate because I'm not going to exaggerate. Science, while they're very scientists, the scientific community is very certain that climate change is going to happen. The temperatures are going to rise. Sea level is going to rise. Ocean acidification is absolutely happening. They don't agree that it's going to result in either more or stronger hurricanes. The people who are hurricane specialists uh, basically say there are warmer oceans tends to make stronger hurricanes, but a warmer upper atmosphere at the same time might suppress hurricanes and they can't really say. So yeah, some scientists will come out and say, yes, you can say that Harvey was wetter because of climate change, but that's unlike the actual fundamental conclusion that climate change is happening, it's devastating and it's human cause. There is no scientific consensus on the relationship between climate change and hurricanes. Okay. So, so it's people... kind of a little ironic that this might be what gets us talking about climate change. Okay. Yeah. But the one thing that scientists don't don't actually agree about might be the thing that gets us talking about climate change, and I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. 
Is there anything in particular that you'd like to add uh, while we're on? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think that to see that the climate movement in a way has to get over its own, some of its own challenges, which is that it's the risk of being more of a values-based movement rather than a grievance-based movement that is is more about kind of, you know, they call it virtue signaling rather than actually addressing a problem. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, to me, um, you know, I get more I get more grief for, for making a big deal about living on a carbon budget from environmentalists than I do from a, the handful of friends I have who are kind of conservative, you know, yeah. not really right wing, but conservative, free market economics, uh, even Trump voters. I, I do know a couple. Oh, yes. I'd say the people I know who are conservative Trump voter types, they respect me for living according to my beliefs and my firm belief that climate change is real and that we are all responsible. Right. I think my environmentalist friends, many of them feel like I'm trying to, you know, out, you know, out ideal them. Yeah, yeah. And they're a little put off. I mean, I had somebody who's a, you know, friend who's a, another environmental law professor saying, you know, yeah, I'm not going to give up flying because, and, and, and you're ridiculous for giving up flying because that's not going to solve the problem. But I actually think it does that until climate advocates, you know, walk the talk and mm -hmm. show that they personally believe that climate change is such an important issue with such huge ramifications, they're willing to change their own life and give up things that are important to them, then I don't think we have much credibility. And that's why I think that individual action, just like, you know, cities are committing to the Paris Agreement, even yeah. while the United States as a nation has pulled out of it or is pulling out of it, yeah. I think individuals should have their own Paris Agreement. Here are the voluntary actions I'm going to take that are consistent with the world meeting a two degree centigrade limit on climate change. And I'm going to take them now, even though I'm under no legal obligation to do it, mm -hmm. and the government uh, systems haven't come into to force yet to make me do it. Right. Well, I think the big where question. we need to go. Do, do you think that individuals like you, governments, countries, will actually do enough in time to stop the um, the worst consequences of climate change? I I, I don't want to make a prediction. I <laughs> hope so. Um, if I think too hard about it, it's very depressing. Okay. Yeah. And, but I know what I can do as an individual and to, to, to try and say, you know, you can live a good life with a modest climate budget, carbon budget that fits within a global framework that would get, get us there. And in a way we have to redefine the good life so that people understand that, you know, you can have a great life, but it does not necessarily mean flying, right? That that's something that you know, guess what? That's something that's not sustainable. You know, if you and the work you're doing, you know, it strikes me that 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 there could be some organizing done here. There's room for more organizing. You know, people taking that kind of individual action. I, I haven't been, you know, and I haven't personally been involved much in 350.org because it's not my personal style to be in that kind of demonstrative public, you know, yeah. uh, direct action, which I think has a place in raising public awareness, but I, I don't think is ultimately going to carry the day. You know, I'm... Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a lawyer who might be representing people who are, you know, arrested for blocking a pipeline, but I'm not the kind of person who's likely to camp out in the pipeline myself. Oh, right? I see. Right. Yeah. But 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 it seems to me that there's room from or organizing, and I, I know there's you know there there's a handful of people that I've just come across, you know, through Twitter and the internet that are doing similar things. I, I don't know if you come across Peter Kalmus. 
who's a uh, climate scientist out in California. I, um, you know, I'll tell you, I've got my own book project on this, which I'm, I'm it's still out to some publishers, which I hope I'll find a publisher for. Uh-huh. Uh, he's got a book that's out calling Being the Change. I, I've actually not, I think I tried email him and didn't get a response. But, but if there's room for organizing people to, you know, to turn... You know, to yeah, I could see a picture where there could be like you know, a social media connections and just like people brag about their fitness, their exercise. You know, the Fitbits where yeah, it goes on yeah, an internet site. Yeah. This is how far I ran today and how many calories I burned. If you could get the similar bragging about carbon footprint, right? Yeah, yeah. And even if it just starts with a handful of people, if that gets to be something they're aware of, because I think the the one thing I would try and get people to do, the number one thing is. Just be aware. Just once a year, go to you know carbonfootprint.org. Though I have problems with each of the online calculators, including carbonfootprint.org. Um, but figure out what your footprint was for the year. Take a look at what your big ticket items really were. Look at how your footprint as an environmentalist compares to the average U.S. or average world footprint, right? Okay. Because I think actually in the United States environmentalists probably on average have a higher footprint than the average American. Mm-hmm. which is really a scandal in a way. Well, Carl, thank you very much for sharing your ideas with us. I think this will probably raise quite a lot of controversy and questions, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for your time. I'll put links to your Facebook page and your um, blog and so on on the blog version of this, and um, thanks again. Well, thank you very much. It was great to talk to you, Anthony. My guest was Carl Copeland, Professor of Law at the Pace University, White Plains, New York, and Director of the Environmental Litigation Clinic. His blog is at livesustainablynow.com. You can find him on Facebook, and he tweets at K-C-O-P-L-A-N. Before I go, I promise to mention how you can be a patron of the Sustainable Futures Report. You can sign up at Patreon dot com slash sfr that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr and pledge your support at a dollar a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month or more the sustainable futures report receives no advertising subsidy or financial support so pledges help me cover the cost of hosting this podcast i said that when my monthly pledges got to five hundred dollars i would make sure that every interview was transcribed so that those of you who prefer reading to listening don't miss out and can read them at sustainablefutures.report. Pledges at present are nowhere near that level, but I've decided to get all interviews transcribed in any case. Your pledges will help cover those costs. You can sign up for as little as $1 a month and stop at any time. Remember, small acts, when multiplied by millions of people, can transform the world. Just a few dozen people could make a big difference. Next week, I'll be back to Sustainable Current Affairs, but there are more interviews in the pipeline, and in November, for the first time ever, there will be a guest presenter. For now, this is Anthony Day signing off, thanking you for listening, and why don't you go to carbonfootprint.com and see what changes you can make. Let me know how you get on. (laughs) 